is good, my black kings and black queens. Today is February 12th, and welcome back to another episode of All Black Everything with me. Yes, me, I, your host, K with two N's. Ken, I said K, whoa. Ken with two N's, yeah, there we go. Ken with two N's, man, and in today's ep- well, let me stop being rude. How are you? How are you doing today? Are you okay? Everything will be fine. Things will get better. Trust me. So today's episode is about the legendary. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I'm trying to. I'm not good at voices, but I'm, well, I'm not good at copying voices. I'm good at making up my own. <laughs> I'm gonna try this. The uh, the legendary Booker. K Washington. <laughs> <laughs> try to guess who that is. Try to guess who that is. But uh, anyway, anyway. Yes, today we will be. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That, <laughs> that was just so funny to me. Becker K Washington. <laughs> but um. Anyway, yes, today's episode is about <laughs> Booker T. Washington. Um, great um, educator, author, leader, founder of uh, the Tuskegee Institute. And we are going to look at his life and his legacy today. Alright, so let's jump straight into this thing. Uh well, it's, a, it's actually like a lot to cover, but I'm going to try to, you know what I'm saying, chop it up, not make it too, too, too long, you know, uh, kind of skip over what's not really necessary, so to speak. Um, Booker T. Washington was born in April 1856 on a small farm in Halesford, Virginia. He was given the middle name Taliaferro, but no last name. His mother, Jane, was an enslaved woman and worked as the plantation cook in Washington's autobiography. He wrote that his father, whom he never knew, was a white man, possibly from a neighboring plantation. Booker had an older brother, John, also fathered by a white man. Jane and her sons occupied a tiny one-room cabin. Their dreary home lacked proper windows and had no beds for its occupants. Booker's family rarely had enough to eat and sometimes resorted to theft to supplement their meager provisions. Around 1860, Jane married Washington Ferguson, an enslaved man from a nearby plantation. Booker later took the first name of his stepfather as his last name. During the Civil War, the enslaved Americans on Booker's plantation, like many enslaved people in the South, continued to work for the enslaver even after the issuance of Lincoln's 1863 Emancipation Proclamation. In 1865, after the war ended, Booker T. Washington and his family moved to Malden, West Virginia, where Booker's stepfather had found a job as a salt packer for the local salt works. Excuse me. Now, it says that, um, I see this a lot, where it's like one slave will marry another slave on another plantation. And I always wonder, like, how? Like, how does that work if you can never leave? You know what I mean? The, the plantation that you were on without, like, permission or, like, if you were... One of the uh, slaves that 
was uh, that would be rented out to other plantations. I mean, I could see it happening that way, but um, or unless you get, you know, unless you get sent to work on the neighboring plantation or nearby plantation, and then you get married. But for me, it's like, how do you get married? Like you meet each other somehow, some way, but you still work on separate plantations. But you get married. I don't know. It's I don't know. Somebody explain it to me. Uh, educate me. Um, living conditions in their new home were no better. Ooh, excuse me. Let's re- let's retry that. Um, <clears throat> living conditions in their home were no better than those. <clears throat> Back at the plantation, nine-year-old Booker worked alongside their stepfather, packing salt into barrels. He despised the work, but did learn to recognize numbers by taking note of those written on the sides of the salt barrels. Like many formerly enslaved Americans in the post-Civil War era, Booker longed to learn how to read and write. When an all-black school opened in a nearby community, Booker begged to go. His stepfather refused, insisting that the family needed the money he brought in from the salt packing. Booker eventually found a way to attend school that night. When he was 10, his stepfather took him out of school and sent him to work in the nearby coal mines. In 1868, 12-year-old Booker T. Washington found a job as a houseboy in the home of the wealthiest couple in Malden, General Louis Ruffner and his wife, Viola Mrs. Ruffner. Oh, it was blue. Viola and his wife, Viola. Mrs. Ruffner was known for her high standards and strict manner. Washington, responsible for cleaning the house and other chores, impressed Mrs. Ruffner, a former teacher, with his sense of purpose and a commitment to improving himself. She allowed him to attend school for an hour a day. Determined to continue his education, 16-year-old Washington left the Ruffner household in 1872 to attend Hampton Institute. A school for black people in Virginia. After traveling over 300 miles by train, stagecoach, and on foot, Washington arrived at Hampton Institute in October of that year, the year 1872. Miss Mackey, the principal at Hampton, was not entirely convinced that the young country boy deserved a place at her school. She asked Washington to clean and sweep a recitation room for her, he did the job so thoroughly that Miss Mackey pronounced him fit for admission. In his memoir, Up from Slavery, Slavery, Washington later referred to that experience as his college examination. That's kind of interesting. If, if like they, if like they kind of did that now, instead of taking like the state test, like the SAT, ACT, uh, stuff like that, they had you, like do something well for him it was it was you know um he had to clean the recitation room but what if what if like you had to do something like for acceptance to be accepted to the the university you had to do something that you you had to do something that was um in relation to the the field of study that you were going there for, you know, doing something in relation to your major. So say like you wanted to be a a, a PE coach or something, you'd have to 
you'd have to play a game of basketball or volleyball or something, a wiffle ball, or like if um, what's another one? What's another one? Give me another one. What's it like? If you want to be a nurse, look at that. If you want to be a nurse, you had to uh, uh, you had to know how to how to take a pulse. And and listen with the um the stethoscope. I think it's I think that's what it's called. The, the little stethoscope. That'd be interesting if like you had to perform a task as your college examination or as your as a way to get accepted into college. Now the trick would be the the catch would be is like what about those who don't know who want to go to college but don't know what they want to do yet. So it's like what do what do those people do? But um. To pay his room and board, Washington worked as a janitor at Hampton Institute. Rising early in the morning to build the fires in the school rooms, Washington also stayed up late every night to complete his chores and work on his studies. Washington greatly admired the headmaster at Hampton, General Samuel C. Armstrong, and considered him his mentor and role model. Armstrong, a veteran of the Civil War, ran the institute like a military academy, conducting daily drills and inspections. Although academic studies were offered at Hampton, Armstrong placed emphasis <clears throat> on teaching trades. Washington embraced all that Hampton Institute offered him, but he was drawn to a teaching career rather than a trade. He worked on his oratory skills, becoming a valued member of the school's debate society. At his 1875 commencement, Washington was among those called upon to speak. A reporter from the New York Times was present at the commencement and praised the speech given by 19-year-old Washington in his column the following day. Um, so, that is like, I've also, I've also noticed that like that's kind of like a big thing, like apart from some of the previous people I've speak I've spoke about, um, you know, a lot of them were into self education, educating themselves. Whereas uh, Booker T. Washington would be the exception here because he um, continued through all the way through school and through, excuse me, um, university to his through Hampson Institute. But um, another thing is that a lot of these people built up their oratory skills, their speaking skills. So he did that. Um I believe it was if I remember correctly, he Booker T. Washington did it. Uh Harriet Tubman definitely did it. And I also believe Madam Chief J. Walker did it too, if I'm not mistaken. So that seems to be like a, a, a big staple too is working on um how you speak the words that you use your pronunciation of those words, your enunciation of your words, um, speak being able to speak more fluently and more coherent, more coherently. See, I need to work on my auditory skills. I be, I be jacking up. But uh, so his first teaching job, um, Booker T. Washington returned to Malden after his graduation with his newly acquired teaching certificate. He was hired to teach at the school in Tinkersville. The same school he had himself attended before Hampton Institute. By 1876, Washington was teaching hundreds of students, children during the day, and adults at night. 
During his early years of teaching, Washington developed a philosophy toward the advancement of black Americans. He believed in achieving the betterment of his race by strengthening the character of his students and teaching them a useful trade or occupation. By doing so, Washington believed black Americans would assimilate more easily into white society, proving themselves an essential part of that society. After three years of teaching, Washington appears to have gone through a period of uncertainty in his early 20s. He abruptly and inexplicably quit his post, enrolling in a Baptist theological school in Washington, D.C. Washington quit after only six months and rarely ever mentioned this period of his life. Um, For me, that's not really surprising. The early 20s is kind of like that time where... You know, you go through trying to find yourself, trying to figure out your purpose, um, trying to grow. Well, for most people in their early 20s, this is what this is what it entails. And it's, you know, um, past trauma, you know, past trauma starts to affect you in your daily life. Um, you start wanting to to be more purposeful. And you start wanting to find your purpose more and you you want to be happy and, you know, for some people, you you know, they want to find love and settle down, maybe, possibly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it says right here when Washington appears to have gone through a period of uncertainty in his early 20s, that's that's just expected, you know, because now, you know, when you're in your early 20s, that's when you finally have stepped out somewhat into the into the real you got like your foot in the door you got one foot in the door of a real society of actual real adult life you know and really you're you're through the door if you don't go to college or anything like that because then you're just sprung right into it boom right into life but um college is kind of like a a halfway point a midpoint you know, kind of like a pit stop, and it kind of like, it kind of like eases you into it a little bit, but then finally when you graduate, boom, they just drop you on your head, and it's like, yep, there you go, now you're on your own, you know what I mean, and so, um, that, that part right there is understandable, by all means, so in February of 1879, Washington was invited by General Armstrong to give the spring commencement speech at Hampton Institute that year. His speech was so impressive and so well received that Armstrong offered a teaching position at his alma mater. Washington began teaching night classes in the fall of 1879. Within months of his arrival at Hampton, night enrollment tripled. In 1881, General Armstrong was asked by a group of educational commissioners from Tuskegee, Alabama for the name of a qualified white man to run their new school for black Americans. The general in, instead suggested Washington for the job. At only 25 years old, formerly enslaved, Booker T. Washington became the principal of what would become T Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute. When he arrived at Tuskegee in June of 1881, however, Washington found that the school had not yet been built. State funding was earmarked only for teacher salaries, not for the supplies or the building of the facility. 
Now that's interesting right there. How do you how do you how do you become a principal of a building that isn't built or an institute that isn't built? Like how like are you like the principal of like the land that is supposed to be built on or because you know this ain't no this is back in <laughs> this is back in 1881 there's no such thing as the as computers as the internet so this 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 is, this is no online institute so how do you I don't know. Washington quickly found a suitable plot of farmland for his school and raised enough money for a down payment. Until he could secure the deed to that land, he held classes in an old shack adjacent to a black Methodist church. The first classes began an astonishing 10 days after Washington's arrival. Gradually, once the farm was paid for, the students enrolled at the school, helped repair the buildings, clear the land, and plant vegetable gardens. Washington received books and supplies donated by his friends at Hampton. As word spread of the great strides made by Washington at Tuskegee, donations began to come in, mainly from people in the North who supported the education of formerly enslaved people. Washington went on a fundraising tour throughout the Northern states, speaking to church groups and other organizations. By May 1882, he had collected enough money to construct a large new building on the Tuskegee campus. During the school's first 20 years, 40 new buildings would be constructed on campus, most of them by student labor. That's amazing. That's two buildings a year. That's impressive. Basically a building every six months. A new building every six months. That's, that's quite astonishing, really. And to think that, you know, it wasn't done by... They didn't, you know, hire any contractors. They didn't contract the work out. They actually, it was the students. It was a school for the students, built by the students. And that's pretty amazing to sit. It it would be, it would be, like, I can't imagine the feeling you sitting in a classroom that you built, like, or that you had a hand in building, you know. Like, you sitting in the, in the dining hall, you're like, yep. Yeah. I built that wall right there. Me and old boy, we built that one right there. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just crazy. Like, yep, me and Shawty right here, we put that flooring down right there. You know, you like that, don't you? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that that would be crazy. That would be crazy. I can't imagine how that would feel to sit. Not just, probably not even just one, like multiple buildings that you had at, but you played a part in them being built. Uh, but in August of 1882, Washington married Fanny Smith, a young woman who had just graduated from Hampton. A great asset to her husband, Fanny became very successful at raising money for Tuskegee Institute and arranged many dinners and benefits. In 1883, Fanny gave birth to the couple's daughter, Portia. Sadly, Washington's wife died the following year of unknown causes. Leaving him a widower at only 28 years old. Sheesh, man. In 1885, Washington married again. His new wife, 31-year-old Olivia Davidson, was the lady principal of Tuskegee at the time of their marriage. Washington held the title administrator 
They had two children together, Booker T. Jr. and Ernest. Olivia Washington developed health problems after the birth of their second child, and she transcended over respiratory ailment in 1889 at the age of 34. Washington had lost two wives within a period of only six years. And my apologies to Fanny. Fanny did not die. Fanny transcended. Uh, but uh, that is, that's tough, boy. Your first wife, she gives you your first child. You know what I'm saying? Going strong. Then just a boom. A year later, gone. Then you marry again. And your your second wife gives you two children. And all of a sudden, boom, gone. And all within six years. That's that'll take a toll on anybody. I probably would have stopped after that if I was him. But Washington married his third wife, Margaret Margaret Murray, in 1892. She, too, was the lady principal at Tuskegee. She helped Washington run the school and care for his children and accompanied him on his many fundraising tours. In later years, she was active in several black women's organizations. Margaret and Washington were married until his transcendence. They had no biological children together but adopted Margaret's orphaned niece in 1904. The growth of Tuskegee Institute. As Tuskegee Institute continued to grow both in enrollment and in reputation, Washington nonetheless found himself in the constant struggle of trying to raise money to keep the school afloat. Gradually, however, the school gained statewide recognition and became a source of pride for Alabamans, leading the Alabama legislature to allocate more funds toward the salaries of instructors. The school also received grants from philanthropic foundations that supported education for black Americans. Tuskegee Institute offered academic courses but placed a great emphasis on industrial education, focusing on practical skills that would be valued in the southern economy such as farming, carpentry, blacksmithing, and building construction. Young women who were taught housekeeping, sewing, and mattress making. Always on the lookout for new money-making ventures, Washington conceived the idea that Tuskegee Institute could teach brick-making to its students and eventually make money selling its bricks to the community. Despite several failures in the early stages of the project, Washington persisted and eventually he succeeded. See, that's one thing. That's the one key thing about um, achieving your goals and about living the life that you want to live, you know, and that's key. That's one of the keys to, um, you know what I mean? Uh, not just existing, but actually living, is to be consistent. As long as you are consistent, you will have a breakthrough, you know what I mean? And it's like um, like that saying, aim for the star, aim for the moon, and if you miss, at least you'll be amongst the stars type of thing. And so that's just kind of how it is. You know, if you stay consistent and you miss your target, you miss your target, you miss your target, you miss your target, don't. No matter how many times you miss it, if you stay consistent, eventually you will hit it on the mark. You know, and like uh, one thing I heard Steve Harvey say was that the the problem isn't that we aim too high and miss. The problem with a lot of us is that we aim too low and we hit. Now, if you, now I'm, I'm going to repeat that. I'm going to repeat that. Steve Harvey said 
The issue is not aiming too high and missing. The problem is aiming too low and hitting. Because once you, if you aim low and you hit, then you're like, oh, well, cool, you know, I, I played it safe and I got kind of what I wanted. Whereas if you would have aimed higher, you could have had what you wanted and even more than what you thought you were going to get, you know. So that's just one thing. You got to be, if you, you know what I'm saying, if you want something, you really, really want something. And, you know, you like you really want to follow your dreams. You really got some goals that you want to knock out and get done and achieve. Then you, you got to stay consistent no matter the obstacles. You got to stay Consistency and and perseverance, them two go hand in hand when trying to, um, you know, reach your goals. Because like with the, like I said, being persistent, um, or not persistent? Did I say persistence? Not persistence. Um, consistency and perseverance. There we go. Because you have when you when you come against these obstacles. You have to be able to persevere. You have to be able to, um, you know, not let it get you down. And you have to be able to get past it so that you can stay consistent. Because if you if you don't, you know, adopt that perseverance, if you don't become, uh, if you lack perseverance, then you're going to let that obstacle stay in your way. And now that breaks up your consistency. You're no longer consistent with whatever it was that you were doing. Um, but in the night, <clears throat> ooh, good gracious almighty. In the 1890s, Washington had become a well-known and popular speaker, although his speeches were considered controversial by some. For instance, he delivered a speech at Fisk University in Nashville in 1890 in which he criticized black ministers as uneducated and morally unfit. His remarks generated a firestorm of criticism from the black community, but he refused to retract any of his statements. In 1895, Washington delivered the speech that brought him great fame. Speaking in Atlanta at the Cotton States and International Exposition, Washington addressed the issue of racial relations in the United States. The speech came to be known as the Atlanta Compromise. Washington expressed his firm belief that black and white Americans should work together to achieve economic prosperity and racial harmony. He urged Southern whites to give black businessmen a chance to succeed in their endeavors. What Washington did not support, however, was any form of legislation that would promote or mandate racial integration or equal rights. In a nod to segregation, Washington proclaimed, In all things that are purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet, one as the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. His speech was widely praised by Southern white people, but many in the black community were critical of his message and accused Washington of being too accommodating to whites, earning him the name the Great Accommodator. Um, hmm. What Washington did not support, however, was any form of legislation that would promote or mandate racial integration or equal rights. In a nod to segregation, Washington proclaimed, in all things that are purely social, 
We can be as separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. Now, excuse me. Mm. Yes, that can be controversial, but I... (laughs) Matter of fact, we're not going to speak on that. What we're going to do... That's gonna be a good episode. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get in. Uh, I'm gonna have somebody on for that, and we're gonna discuss that because I think I have a very interesting and controversial uh, point of view on that statement. But um, his tour of Europe in his autobiography, Washington gained international acclaim. During a tour of Europe in 1899, Washington gave speeches to various organizations and socialized with leaders and celebrities, including Queen Victoria and Mark Twain. Before leaving for the trip, Washington stirred up controversy when he was asked to to comment on the murder of a black man in Georgia who had been strung up and burned alive. He declined to comment on the horrific incident, adding that he believed that education would prove to be the the cure for such actions. His tepid response was condemned by many black Americans. In 1900, Washington formed the National Negro Business League, NNBL, with the goal of promoting black-owned businesses. The following year, Washington published his successful autobiography, Up From Slavery. The popular book found its way into the hands of several philanthropists, resulting in many large donations to to Tuskegee Institute. Washington's autobiography remains in print to this day and is considered by many historians to be one of the most inspirational books written by a black American. The stellar reputation of the Institute brought in many notable speakers, including industrialist Andrew Carnegie and feminist Susan B. Anthony. Famed agricultural scientist George Washington Carver became a member of the faculty and taught at Tuskegee for nearly 50 years. That's my boy right there. George Washington Carver. That's the man who invented peanut butter right there. Nah, anybody who know me know I love some peanut butter. I'm a, I will go so far to say that I'm addicted. I'm addicted to peanut butter. Like, I should be on that show. Um, what is it? Fatal Attraction, I think it is. Or Obsessed or something like that. It's on one of, I don't watch TV anymore, but it used to be some show called, like, like, obsessed or whatever, and they have, like, people on there who'd be, like, crazy obsessed with something. Like, I remember one one chick or dude was, like, obsessed with, like, ketchup. Um, There was one lady, she was addicted to eating toilet paper. Um, There was another lady, she was addicted to smelling gasoline. Like, she would put gasoline in a, in a water bottle and just, like, sniff it. Um, so yeah, I should definitely be on that show because I go crazy with the peanut butter. But anyway, I digress. Washington found himself at the center of controversy once again in October 1901 when he accepted an invitation from President Theodore Roosevelt to dine at the White House. Roosevelt had long admired Washington and even sought his advice on a few occasions. Roosevelt felt it only fitting that he invite Washington to dinner. But the very notion that the president dined with a black man at the White House created a furor among white people, both Northerners and Southerners. Many black Americans, however, took it as a sign of progress. Yeah, we are on the foot out here. Progress. Uh, <laughs> progress in the quest for racial equality. 
Roosevelt, stung by the criticism, never again issued an invitation. Washington benefited from the experience, which seemed to seal his status as the most important black man in America. Washington continued to draw criticism for his accommodationist. Good gracious, I have to work on my oratory skills. That's that's just what this is. That's, but uh, I'm going to try to get this right. Accommodationist. There we go. Accommodationist policies. That's a, I've never seen the word accommodation turned into an adjective. Accommodationist policies. Two of his greatest critics were William Monroe Trotter, a prominent black newspaper editor and an, act, an activist. And W.E.B. Dubois, a black faculty member at Atlanta University. Dubois criticized Washington for his narrow views on the race issue and for his reluctance to promote an academically strong education for black Americans. Washington saw his power and relevance dwindle in his later years as he traveled around the globe giving speeches. Washington seemed to ignore glaring problems in America such as race riots, lynchings, and the disenfranchisement of black voters in many southern states. Although Washington later spoke out more forcefully against discrimination, many black Americans would not forgive him for his willingness to compromise with white people at the cost of racial equality. At best, he was viewed as a relic from another area. At worst, a hindrance to the advancement of his race. Now, um, I could, I could, I can see the, the frustration that the black community would have with Booker T. Washington because, you know, Silence is compliance. So, well, in my opinion, in my opinion, silence is compliance. So, when you, when somebody asks you how you feel about these race riots, how you feel about these lynchings, how you feel about people's disenfranchisement, and you don't say anything, and you're like the most prominent, most sought after most famous black man at the time to not speak on these things, uh, it's kind of bad publicity, bro. And you're like, you're giving yourself a bad reputation, really honestly. And it's like, like it says uh, later, he spoke out more forcefully, you know, later in his life. But at that point, at that point, it's too late, but it's like, it's like one thing, <laughs> like, like people who are out of shape and unhealthy, excuse me, like people who are obese and, you know, or overweight or no, 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 better, better example, better example, people who go through life. You know what I'm saying? They don't really work out. They don't really eat healthy. And then, boom, they go to the... They're, like, 40 years old. And the doctor's like, yeah, you got hypertension. Um, uh, you got you got type 2 diabetes. You got gout. You know, all this stuff. And then it's, like, right there at 40 years old. Oh, now it's time to start living my life healthy. Like, no, you should have been doing that from the start. Because now you have lived... 40 years, 40 years of unhealthiness, right? <clears throat> it's going to take you another 40 just to get in peak health rather than if you would have been already living a healthy life up until 40 years old. Then you wouldn't be having this problem. You can't fix 
years and years of damage in less time than it took to create the damage. You know what I mean? It's going to take you longer to fix it than it was for you to actually get to that point. You know what I mean? And so that's just kind of how I see it with him. Um, He did all this damage by not speaking on the, the riots and the lynchings and the disenfranchisement and being more accommodating, you know what I mean? And so for him to speak out later in life, it's like, honestly, it's too late because now it's going to take you more years to to correct the things. It's going to take you more years to correct your mistakes than if you had been speaking on these things from the start, from the beginning, then there would be nothing to correct, you know? But um, Washington's frequent travel and busy lifestyle eventually took a toll on his health. He developed high blood pressure. Look look at this. this. I was just talking about this stuff. Developed high blood pressure and kidney disease in his 50s and became seriously ill while on a trip to New York in November of 1915. Insisting that he transcend at home, Washington boarded a train with his wife for Tuskegee. He was unconscious when they arrived and transcended a few hours later on November 14th. 1915, at the age of a young 59, Booker T. Washington was buried on a hill overlooking the Tuskegee campus in a brick tomb built by a student. Oh, look, look, look at that. Students built the school and they built his tomb. My goodness. From an enslaved man to the founder of a black university, Booker T. Washington's life traces the vast changes undergone and distances traversed by black Americans after the Civil War into the 20th century. He was an educator, prolific writer, orator, advisor to the presidents, and considered the most prominent black American at the height of his career. His accommodationist approach to advancing the economic lives and rights of black people in America was controversial, even in its own time, and remains controversial to this day. And that is the life and legacy of Booker T. Washington. But as you know, um, when we talk about a specific individual, we most definitely have to bring about their most notable quote. And his most notable quote, I've actually, it was actually in the um, in the material. But as it states, uh, open quote: "In all things that are purely social, we, black and white people, can be separate as the fingers." Yet one, as the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. End quote. Now, uh, I personally don't know how you feel about that. How do you feel about? It? How do you feel about being separate yet one? If you look at your hand, your fingers are separate, but they're all part of one main component, and that's the hand. So, how do you take that? Like I said, this is going to be an episode. Well, for right now, for this month, we're just focusing mostly on black history. But we will get into these controversial topics around surrounding the black community, black culture. You know what I mean? And then, you know, that way it'll be a little bit more um, captivating, engaging, and more, um, what what should I say? What's what more stimulating. There we go. That's the word, more stimulating. But, um... Yeah, how do you feel? I know how I feel about that, and I've spoke on this to some people at 
you know, a uh, specific time in life. But, and you know, I got the response that was, I try not to have expectations for the most part, but at the time, I still believed in expectations. So I kind of got the response that I expected from the people that I told. But, uh, and maybe I hadn't said it in the best way, but it was how I felt. It was definitely how I felt. But, uh, anywho. That's it for Booker T. Washington. That's it for today's episode of All Black Everything. I hope you enjoyed this. And please, please, please send your questions, comments, and concerns to the email, which are in the description. But I will tell you right now, the email is 4LL3LACK, everything, E-V-E-R-Y-T-H-I-N-G at gmail.com. That is all together. There ain't no spaces, no period, no underscores, none of that. And then also follow the social media. Follow the Instagram, man, at uh, All Black Everything. That's A-L-L underscore three L-A-C-K underscore everything. E-V-E-R-Y-T-H-I-N-G. And like I said, that'll all be in the description. I hope you have a good day. I hope you have a great and amazing weekend because today is Friday. And, um... Just share this, man. Share this with your people. Share this with your, your your cousins. All the way down to the 25th one. You know? All the way down to your 25th cousin. Uh, share this with your moms. Your pops. Your grandma. Your grandpa. Your neighbor's dog. Your, li- your daughter's cat. You know what I mean? Your son's hamster. All of them. Share it. And you already know. The number one person, the most important person who has to listen to this every single time that I post an episode is the aunt who has what? Who has been three times removed, twice replaced, added and subtracted, but never divided. And I'm not going to even say the rest because you know the rest. But uh, yeah, man, that's it for today's episode of All Black Everything. Enjoy your weekend and I'm out. Peace. Wait. You thought I forgot, didn't you? Man, black peace, black love, black soul. I'm out.